Well, this morning we are completing a six-sermon Easter series, kind of an extended Easter series, and, and I want you to hear this sermon this morning and look at this text this morning as part of that series, which we began all the way back on Palm Sunday. Seems like forever ago, doesn't it? Palm Sunday. Uh, we, we looked at Jesus entering the king's city and being proclaimed the king, which is his right, rightful, rightful position. Uh, we, we looked at Good Friday where this king suffered and bled and died to atone for the sins of his people. That's why there's goodness in it. Because what evil men intended for evil against him, God intended for good for us and for him. Because he's at the right hand of the Father and he sees his people. We looked at Resurrection Sunday and the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and how that is a promise of resurrection life for us who believe in him. But that wasn't the end of the Easter story. We looked at the ascension and Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father where he reigns. And, and we've been looking at Pentecost. We've taken Acts chapter 2 and split it into two just to make it a little more manageable. We looked at the first half of Pentecost last week in Acts chapter 2 which was the pouring out of the Spirit. Jesus having ascended to the right hand of the Father, he pours out his Spirit as was prophesied by Joel. That it was God's promise that he would pour out his Spirit upon his people, all kinds of people, and that they would prophesy, that they would proclaim the good news and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to other people. And as we look at the second half of Acts chapter 2 this morning, as we focus on that, we see this being carried out. We see the handoff take place. That the ministry of Jesus through the Spirit in his earthly ministry, when Jesus ascends to the Father, he sends that same Spirit that was with and in and through him to us, to dwell in us, that the church now will carry on this same gospel work in the growing of the kingdom. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. And I want to, I promise I'm not going to re-preach the first half of Acts chapter 2, but I do want to reread it and make it just a couple of comments so that we can see how that flows into the second half that we're going to look at this morning. So let me read again chapter 2 of Acts, verses 1 through 21. We'll make a few comments on that, and then we'll proceed with the rest of the chapter. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. 
For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pentecost is a very dramatic event. It's a unique, epic-changing event. Early in the morning, the Holy Spirit of God is poured out on the 120 disciples, just as Jesus told them. It's accompanied by miraculous attesting of signs of, sight, of signs of sight and sound. And the Spirit-filled disciples preached the gospel in real languages, which they did not know, but which were clearly understood by people from across the Roman Empire who spoke those languages. It was a spectacular event but still a mysterious event for the crowd that had been drawn together by the Holy Spirit, empowered preaching of those Galileans. And in verse 12, they ask the obvious but important question, what does this mean? And Peter becomes the spokesperson for the group, which is, I think, the beginning of the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter's not elevated above the other apostles, but he is given this unique role to open the kingdom of God with the proclamation of the gospel. And we see it here. And Peter preaches an expository sermon on Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. What this means is that the last days have come with God pouring out his spirit on his people. And the last days will end with the day of judgment. So Pentecost means that God has sent his spirit who has been on Jesus' life from conception to ascension to dwell in Jesus' disciples. But who is Pentecost about? What does Pentecost mean and who is Pentecost about are entirely different questions. Is Pentecost about the Holy Spirit? Does Peter go on to preach about the Holy Spirit? Or how you can get the Holy Spirit? No. Who does Peter go on to preach about? The passage in Joel ends saying, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the link, that's the propulsion forward into the rest of Peter's sermon. The meaning of Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit has come. But Pentecost is centered on Jesus. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is about Jesus. The words of the disciples uttered in other languages were about Jesus. And Peter goes on to preach, not about the Holy Spirit at all, but all about Jesus, the Lord Christ, who saves. This is what Jesus told them back in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 26. He told his disciples, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
and you also will bear witness. That's what's happening. To be indwelled by the Holy Spirit is to be clothed with power from on high to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a transformation has taken place in this man, Peter. Remember how he was scared by a little slave girl in the chief priest's court who tried to identify him with Jesus? No, no, I don't know the man. What a, what a, what a denial of Jesus. Look at him now. Look at the fruit of this man's 40-day Bible study with the resurrected Jesus and Peter's understanding of the meaning of Pentecost and where in his Bible it is promised. He goes on to preach the gospel, again, using the scriptures to identify the resurrection of Christ and the kingship of Jesus. I mean, if this is, Peter take, this, this is Peter taking the keys of the kingdom out of his pocket and throwing open the gates of gospel proclamation, and I believe it is, then we should pay attention to what Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, has to say about Jesus right here. So let's pick up in verse 22, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth... A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and are hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord your God calls to himself. With many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The men of Israel to whom Jesus is preaching basically believe in God. Whether they're Jews or proselytes or God-fearers, they're all in Jerusalem, remember, to celebrate the feast of, the past, of Pentecost. So they believe that, uh, that God has promised them in scriptures a Messiah, a holy one who would save them, and a king, a prosperous one who would rule over them in the line of David. They believe these things. But there were some things that they did not know. Things the disciples did not know until Jesus told them. They did not know that the Messiah and the king would be the same person. They hadn't put them together. Nor did they know that that one person would also be the very Son of God. Still, those are things that could be, theoretically, taught from the Scriptures and eventually understood. Jesus rebuked his disciples and Nicodemus and the Pharisees from time to time for not understanding these very things. And there are people today who call themselves Christians, who do not believe that Jesus is deity, that he is the very Son of God, that he is the authoritative king over them. But there are two more things that they just would not believe. They would not believe that this Son of God, Messiah King, would die. I mean, that's just counterintuitive. He couldn't die. And they would not believe that having been killed he would be resurrected from the dead. Even though their ancestor Abraham believed these things by faith, believing in God has always been by faith. Jesus told his disciples that if they have seen him, they've seen the Father. And Jesus exhorted the crowds to believe not only in God, but believe also in the one whom he has sent. These things go together. So the very first thing that Peter speaks is the name of the Lord that they must cry out to if they hope to be saved on that great and magnificent day of the Lord. The one prophesied about in Joel. And that name is Jesus of Nazareth. And you can imagine the skeptics in the crowd, right? the ones who accused the disciples of being drunk on cheap wine, you can imagine them mocking Peter and saying, Jesus of Nazareth? Our own religious leaders judged him to be a blasphemer, not a Messiah. And the Romans condemned him as an insurrectionist, not a king. Jesus the criminal who was put to death on a cross? I mean, you can imagine that kind of a reaction, even as, even as you and I imagine when we begin to open our mouth to tell somebody about Jesus, how somebody might mock us. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth? 
this is going to be an uphill battle for Peter to convince this crowd that Jesus is Lord. I mean, honestly, why does he bother to go on speaking? Well, first of all, because Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus has filled Peter with his spirit and his power for this very thing. So Peter bears witness to Jesus and to the Father who sent him. He says, God commended Jesus to you with signs that identified him as God's son, Messiah, and king. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He even raised the dead. You may remember at one point, Jesus even said, if you won't believe my words, believe the signs. They identify me. God commended Jesus. God delivered Jesus over to the lawless Romans to crucify him. No one could take Jesus' life unless Jesus chose to lay it down. And he did. Why? Because that was God's plan from the beginning. That's what Peter says. Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head on the cross. On the cross, Jesus suffered the punishment of death in our place for our sins. (laughs) What kind of a plan is that? It's the kind of plan we've seen before. It's the kind of plan these Jews have seen before in the life of Joseph. Joseph suffered at the hands of his brothers, but rose to authority in Egypt to give his brothers the food they needed during the famine so that they would live and not die. And Joseph forgave his brothers for their evil transgression against him, saying, as for you, you meant evil against me, But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's the kind of plan it is. It's a salvation plan. God commended Jesus to them as his righteous and innocent son. God delivered Jesus over to them to suffer and die as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And God raised Jesus up from the dead. Did he really die? Yes. Peter says here, he felt death's pangs tied around him, but the tether of death loosed and fell away. Jesus was resurrected because it was not possible for death to hold him. Do you see why Jesus told his disciples, believe in the Father, believe also in me? (laughs) Peter's sermon is about the Son and the Father. And everything that Jesus did, he did with the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that now indwells Peter and every believer who's here this morning. Peter has identified Jesus to the crowd. That was all, that was all just Gospel 101 up to that point. And now he turns to the Scriptures to address Jesus' death and especially his resurrection. Those two things that they would not believe of a son, Messiah, and king. The question is, at this point, I think, why is it impossible for death to hold Jesus? I mean, if I was in the crowd, that's what I would ask. It's certainly where Peter goes next. The apostle Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, and then he interprets it for them. Here's what this means. He says, this isn't just a song. 
It isn't just a prayer, it's a prophecy about Jesus. Look at verses 25 to 28. I saw the Lord always before me. Now David is, David is writing this, but David in Psalm 16 is suddenly moving to a different level. I saw the Lord always before me. He, in, in fact, it's prefaced by David says concerning him. Peter says this is, this is David giving voice to Jesus. Jesus saw the Lord always before him. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh will dwell in hope. What, what's he saying? My body will dwell in hope. Well, that's an interesting thing to put in a psalm. Why would his body dwell in hope? Because, because God will not abandon Jesus' soul to Hades. Because God will not let his holy one see corruption. He won't let his body rot. You have made known to me the paths of life, Jesus says to the Father. You will make me full of gladness with your presence, Jesus says to the Father. That's what Peter says. That's how we interpret these verses. And so he takes that and he goes on to say, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David is both dead and buried and his tomb's with us to this day. We can take a short walk over to David's tomb and we can find his dust there. That's where David's body is, but where's, where's, where's Jesus' body? What's well, a good question. It's not in the tomb, is it? Tomb's empty. It's only been six weeks, they remember. Tomb's empty. Because this Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses of it, they say. You see, in his death, Jesus' body did not know corruption. Rather, God has made known to Jesus the path of life. God has made Jesus full of gladness because Jesus is in the Father's presence. He has ascended to the right hand of power on high. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Peter does, and so he tells it. Jesus is not only our resurrected Messiah, he's also our ascended king. Peter links God's resurrection of this Holy One to God's promise to David of an eternal king. In verse 34, Peter interprets Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord God said to my Lord Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus is deity. Jesus is the Son. And Jesus is the King. David did not ascend into heaven. We, we know where David's body is. He was speaking of King Jesus ascending his throne in heaven and whose heavenly coronation event you are experiencing now. He's pouring out his Holy Spirit, which you're hearing as a mighty rushing wind, and seeing as tongues of fire. Peter preaches from Scripture that this one Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and God's promised saving Messiah and God's powerful ruling King. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Peter is preaching to many of those who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, when Pilate offered to release Jesus. Just a few weeks before, the same chief priests, the same members of the Sanhedrin, 
that mocked Jesus as he hung on the cross were still in office, were still in authority. This is Peter's audience. How did Peter think they would respond to such an indictment? This is Jesus of Nazareth whom you crucified. I mean, do you feel the weight of Peter's indictment? You should. But you will only feel the weight of Peter's indictment if you believe the truth of who Peter says Jesus is. If he's just a blasphemer and a criminal, no weight. But if he is whom Peter has said he is, and he has shown us in Scripture that he is, then you'd feel that weight. Will you convict such men of such evil? Who could convict such men of who Jesus really is? Jesus was comforting and instructing his disciples back in John chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 4. Turn with me to John chapter 16 and verse 4. Down at the bottom of the verse where the paragraph begins, Jesus says to his disciples, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. (laughs) It's the Holy Spirit who convicts. It wouldn't be Peter, and Peter knew that. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts the sinner of Jesus' identity. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts the sinner of their sin. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts these sinners that Jesus, whom they despised, is both Lord and Christ. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to preach the gospel, but it is the Spirit himself that brings conviction to sinners' hearts. And that's what's happening here at Pentecost. Peter's preaching. Peter is wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the gospel of Christ, and they're cut to the heart. The Spirit reaches into their hearts, and their hearts are laid open to the truth of who Jesus is and to their violent rejection of him. And they cry out to Peter and the other disciples, What shall we do? What shall we do? What has happened to these men? What has happened to these men who have gathered from across the whole Roman world that they are asking this old Galilean fisherman for spiritual advice? Peter knows it was not the eloquence of his speech. It was that the Holy Spirit had convicted them of sin and righteousness and judgment. You cannot be saved from God's judgment until you are convicted of your sin. And you will not repent of your sin unless you are convicted that God will forgive you. And so Peter says, repent. 
Turn away from your sin. Separate from this wicked generation. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Remember Jesus' great commission to the church in Matthew 18 to make disciples and then to baptize them. And if you would do this, you will have the forgiveness of your sins. And you will have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice, notice Peter's understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. Look, what he, look at what he says about promises in verse 39. Salvation by faith in Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to the Jews, to you and your children. And then it's new covenant expansion. Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ is also for the Gentiles, those who were far off. So Abraham is the father of many nations by faith in the promised seed who is Christ. We're told that there is more to Peter's preaching and teaching with many other words. He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This bent, sinful, perverted generation. It's kind of interesting because I think it shows us that the problem we face is not that we live in the last days. I'm sorry. I continue to just chuckle when people say, do you think we're living in the last days? Yes, we're living in the last days. We have since the outpouring of the Spirit of Pentecost, and we will be until Jesus returns. We're living in the last days. The problem is not that we live in the last days. The problem is that we live in this crooked generation. We need to stop looking at today as if it were a puzzle. As if we don't know what's going on. Stop loving the world and the things in the world. Stop fearing man and what he can do to you. That's what Peter's doing. Each last day, frankly, is just like the last next day. And just like the next last day. Until we get to the final day. That one will be different. Otherwise... The last days are the last days. And what's happening in these last days is that God is keeping his promise and bringing about his purposes for salvation. Jesus is rescuing sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation all around the globe to the ends of the earth. Hooray for the last days. And then there's a result. There's a result from the Spirit being poured out and spirit-filled people proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read again, beginning in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which I believe is the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, I believe that's a meal. They're in their homes eating a meal. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, although that favor would be short-lived. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, throughout the book of Acts, Luke gives us these snapshots 
of what the church looks like and how the church is doing. And this is the first and the longest, and I think the most instructive of those snapshots. I also think it's one of the most difficult passages for the church today to follow. Seems pretty harmless. How could that be hard? This looks like a pleasant picture. Why would that be hard for us to do? I'll, I'll synthesize, synthesize it into this. this. This crooked generation that we need to save ourselves from by calling upon the name of the Lord is hyper-individualistic. It's all me, me, me. It's not a new diagnosis. It's an accurate diagnosis. Here's the part we don't like. That we ourselves, who are part of this crooked generation, though we've been saved from its effects, at least its destiny, we're still bent towards hyper-individualism. We're products of this hyper-individualized generation. It's true. Now, if you have <clears throat> come to saving faith in Christ, you are less me, me, me than you used to be. That's good. But that doesn't mean that you have grasped Christ's attitude here in these verses, which says your life and your thinking should be us, us, us. Pentecost and the Spirit, witnessing and salvation are not primarily individual things. They're corporate things. We've been separated out of this crooked generation and established as a new community, a new people, the church. The Holy Spirit unites us and makes us one living body of which Christ is the head. Through all of this, Jesus is building his church. Jesus loves his church. Jesus is purifying his church. So together, they devoted themselves to a few basic things. They ordered their individual lives around the life of the church. Because now they are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they were devoted to Christ, they were devoted to one another. And their ways of devotion looked like this. Devotion to the apostles' teaching. Because the apostles taught what Jesus taught. The word of God. Devotion to the fellowship, that is to one another. They gave to the poor among them as, as needs arose. That is tangible love for the brethren that Jesus commanded in John chapter 13. Love one another as I have loved you. So together, the church lives out the two greatest commandments. To love God and to love one another. With those two devotions. Then there are these ways, the devotion, of, the devotion to the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, which Christ instituted. Before participating in this ordinance, they had already participated in the ordinance of baptism after having come to saving faith. 
and they devoted themselves to prayers. They gathered together to pray at the appointed times. These are things they were devoted to. They, these are things they prioritized on their calendar. These were the things they wrote in first, in ink. And then the other things about daily life, they penciled in around them. So let me ask you, do you see a picture of your church here? Is your church devoted to these things? Because these are the things you need to be a church. Let me ask you, are you devoted to these things? Because these are the things that you need to be a Christian. We look at this picture and the church appears to be a very simple thing, doesn't it? There's nothing complicated here at all. It's pretty simple. We've heard of all of them before. Why do we tend to make church so complicated? And I'm broadening the idea here. Why do we, we could say the evangelical church in America, why do we make church so complicated? I'm, I'm going to mention just two reasons. Remember that, that idea that really we're hyper-individualistic. We like what we like, what we like, what we like. Well, I think we tend to make things complicated because churches pander to every desire of our hyper-individualism rather than the oneness of our devotion. We should have a oneness of devotion. It would be really easy to accommodate that oneness of devotion in these things. It's very complicated to address every hyper-individualistic preference. Second, the church has devoted herself to excitement. Yeah, excitement. Because these things are kind of boring. There, I said it out loud for you. Every kid starts out thinking church is boring. Unfortunately, it continues with many into adulthood. Why are so many churches devoted to so many other things? I mean, you can cancel Bible study, but don't cancel, I don't know, the sound and lights. Why are they devoted to so many other Things because they want to increase people's excitement. What, what, what standard of excitement are they going for? Well, I think it's the, the standard of excitement that we, that we experience in entertainment. Whatever it is that excites us in the world of entertainment, that's the standard that many churches are shooting for. We just want to make things exciting. Because if people are excited, they'll come. And we want excited people to come. So we give them this exciting experience. They add sights and sounds to create a, a Pentecost-like experience. If everybody would be really excited about the sounds and the sights, well, well then inter individuals, they, they respond to this kind of thing. They know that. And these churches prove that. But 
the Christ-like church. The Spirit-filled church is actually excited about these things. The Christ-centered church, the Spirit-filled church, is actually excited about its devotion to the gospel. Is actually excited about fellowship with one another. Is actually excited about the means of grace and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And is actually excited to gather and devote themselves to prayer. They are in awe of God's transforming work in their hearts. What does it matter if a light flashes? What does it matter if the sound is loud? What does it matter if many gather if your heart's not being transformed? But if your heart's being transformed, that's exciting. Because that's the power of God who does that. And nothing else. They're excited about the salvation that they've been given. Oh my, why should we gather and worship the Lord? You've been given salvation and you are His. You are no longer yours. You serve Him. They're moved to love one another and to pray for the lost. These are the things that make the church a true witness to Jesus in a crooked generation. The other things have nothing to do with it. And unfortunately, these things get lost in the other things. How can a church accomplish much without doing these simple things? How can a church accomplish much when she prays little? Devotion to these simple things is actually very exciting because these are the things that bear fruit. What kind of fruit is produced in and through these boring, devoted Christians? Well, how about love? The crooked generation is demanding, have you noticed? They're demanding love from every individual for every other individual in individual ways. And yet they can't produce that love. While we live out Christ's command to love one another with the love with which he loved us, so that we care for one another, so that we spend time with one another, so that we love one another in tangible ways. That's what Peter shows us here, the church was doing, loving one another, caring for one another in tangible ways. Another fruit is that we receive and recognize God's provision for us. We receive the blessing of God our Father who delights to give things to his children and we receive it with gladness of heart. That's what Peter says. Instead of walking around thinking they do everything, we walk around saying, God has done this for us. God has provided for me. God has given me the job. God has given me the ability to work. God has allowed me to make decisions about the, to, about the stewardship of these blessings that he's given to me. And so we respond, we grow with generosity towards others. We learn to be generous as our Savior is generous. Don't you want to be more generous than you are now? You can be in the church. Who else but the church bears the fruit of praise to our God? Not the crooked generation. 
The rocks do a better job of praising God than this crooked generation. You see, through devotion to the apostles' teaching, we grow to know him more and to love him more and to offer even more of our lives to serve in service to him. Don't you want to serve Christ? Don't you want to hear him say, well done? You see, the church that is devoted in these ways bears the fruit of salvation. The Lord may not add 3,000 to our number this morning. But you never know. Peter didn't know. But he knew that Jesus is Lord. And he knew that he was a Holy Spirit-empowered witness. And so he was devoted to Christ. So he preached the gospel. And sinners were saved out of a crooked generation and into this devoted church. This is a picture of what our life is supposed to be like. It's a picture of what the disciples' lives were like. This is how Holy Spirit-filled people live. These are the things we must devote ourselves to. And so say no to other things that would confuse us or distract us. We're united in Christ by His Spirit. We're committed together to one another. To love one another as Christ has loved us. And here's a picture to bear witness about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us and the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit and we ask that you would, you would help us. That you would help us to be your devoted church, your devoted people, your proclaiming people a witness to the Lord in all the ways that he's called us to do. And Lord, we pray that we would be obedient to do the things that you will bring gospel fruit from. Gospel fruit in our hearts, in our transformed lives, in our experience as your people who love one another and love you. And Father, all of the things that bring you glory. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.